G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we talk to D co-founder Annie Parker about why Telstra started a tech accelerator and what it takes to grow the next generation of great tech companies. Then we'll pop down to Melbourne and talk to Guide co-founders Andrew Julian and Darcy Laycock. Their startup is part of a huge sea change in how we find, share, and view TV and movies. So we're growing the brightest future on This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills, Australia's experts on employee share ownership schemes, and Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. Sometimes people working in tech have a very peculiar kind of focus. It's as if they're a one-note symphony, plenty of movement, but it's the same note over and over and over again. Then you meet folks in tech, they're like a breath of fresh air. They're interested, they're engaged, they're working hard not just to succeed, but to make the world a bit better. Annie Parker is the co-founder of Morudi. She's part of the Telstra tech startup, and we will be talking about that. But more importantly, Annie Parker is one of those rare people. When you meet her, you know that the world is going to be a better place because she's in it. Annie, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. And what a lovely introduction. And completely accurate. So let's start off with you are one of the founders of Morudi. All mm-hmm. right. And we haven't really on this show talked about what Morudi is and why it exists and why Telstra wanted to do it. So why don't you start off telling us a little bit about that? Sure. So about three years ago, um, something called the Telstra Software Group was created within uh, the, this sort of structure of, of differences and choices that Telstra was looking at in terms of how do they get involved in the software game and which bits do they want to make a bet on. And the president of the Telstra software group, a lady called Charlotte Yarconi, was presenting Telstra with different options of companies that they could acquire or take a significant sort of market share in mm-hmm. and that those companies could potentially become future revenue streams for the business. So and putting bets down. Kind essentially, of what, yeah, but putting what big Fairf- bets. Right, but kind of what Fairfax forgot to do. A little bit. Oh, you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, and Charlotte was working with the, the Telstra board at the time and, and putting forward you know, a short list of companies that could be interesting for Telstra, and mm. one of which they actually did invest in, which was Iyala about a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, just over a year ago, and they're an intelligent video play. Mm. Um, and one of the questions that actually came back from the board at the time was, why are there very few or no Australian companies on this list? Ah, this list was very much good dominated by American, European, right. maybe some Chinese companies on the list. And Charlotte's very short answer was because there isn't the ecosystem here. Okay. Um, and she then also said that she kept hearing more Australian accents over in the valley yeah. than she heard when she was visiting here in Melbourne and Sydney. And the follow-up question was, okay, so what do we do to change that? And happily, um, her answer was very much listened to, which is if you want to encourage the very best Australian talent to stay here and build their great businesses and encourage them to go global from Australia, mm-hmm. then you need to help support and grow the ecosystem in you which scaffold they that. operate. And the, the, op- the, the answer to that was, okay, so let's let's build an accelerator program Mm -hmm. whereby we can give early stage seed investment, but more importantly, give lots of help, advice, and connect the dots for these startups so that they can learn quicker, fail faster, all of those wonderful um, uh, buzzwords and and phrases that we hear all of the time, but are true. Right. Um, And I think the other thing that Telstra is able to deliver as a result of this operation is Accelerate is an interesting word. Mm. In some ways, it is helping them to kind of learn those lessons quicker because we can help connect them to advisors and mentors that otherwise they wouldn't be able to to get to. Right. Um, but it's also about opening doors quicker. And when you've got you know upwards of thirty odd thousand people working for a, a company in this country, mm-hmm. that's quite a lot of people. Um, bearing in mind there's only 23, 24 million population. 
So that old chestnut of it's 60 degrees of separation. Right. When you knock on the door of you know the, the, the network within Telstra, we can pretty much find that person that they need to speak to or open the door to the, the company or the supplier that they want to speak to way quicker than the startup would be able to do by themselves. Right. So a lot of what Marudi is is about helping to connect the dots. And if you actually look at our brand, our logo, the, the, the word itself, mm. Muru is an indigenous word and it means the path to. And the D stands for digital. We took an indigenous word to inspire our brand name, but it really inspired the DNA of who we are and what we do, which is really just to leave things better than we find them, Mm. to help encourage people to get involved and to connect the dots between people who need help to those who can give it. Now, you're in your third intake right now, is that right? Third intake here in Sydney. We're just about to open the application process for the partnership that we run with River City Labs in Brisbane. Brisbane, right. And I saw Mick up there last year when I was doing my Brisbane special. And then we've also got our operation over in Singapore as well. So we're just opening the second round of applications for that on the 1st of of June. Now, I mention this because it actually sounds like the kinds of startups because you get lots of applications and you generally get I think last time you got what like 200 and you accepted around 20 is that right in 210 Europe? spots so yeah. yeah okay okay so so 210 spots what you are looking for then is the kind of startup that benefits from the kind of accelerating that you do yes you know it's not really just growth hacking it's actually how do you actually integrate yourself into the australian economy because that because telstra sits in the middle of that economy and and you can expand that to southeast asia and Mm. china as well because telstra is obviously um has a huge uh, strategy around growth across the region not just within the australian borders um if we want to continue to be a company that continues to get you know significant investment dollars then right. we need to look at growth markets and of course markets in southeast asia are super interesting from that perspective um and i think your point is really well made around we are looking for startups who will thrive in that environment mm. I think the other way that I like to put it as well, though, is we want to help the startups and the founders become better entrepreneurs, Mm. but we also want for them to pay it forward. So we don't expect that it just goes straight into their brains and that's where it stays. Mm. We want them to share it with others. We want them to pass it on to the next generation. We want them to inspire others to get involved in the ecosystem too. How do you get them to do that? How do you present the opportunities? Because the thing is an entrepreneur is going to be so focused on just building their own company. Sure. They're getting them to look outside themselves. It's not that they won't, but you kind of have to make that an easy path for them so that, that that it's an easier thing for them to do. So we do, as part of our selection process, so it's an online application form, oh. we do a bunch of filtering, and then we select sort of a top 40 or so that we meet face-to-face right. and sort of dig into um, them as founders and what's really motivating them to fix this problem they're solving. Mm-hmm. And then we do boot camp. Mm. And boot camp's interesting. So it's over a two-day period. And that's 20 companies, right? Yeah, we're, at, we're down to about 20 or 25. Right, so you go from 200 to 40 to 20. Yeah. Okay. It's usually 25 because we're, te- we're terrible at making decisions. Uh. And honestly as well, um, I've been doing this for about five years now over in Europe before I moved here to Australia. And one thing I've learned is if you can see a spark, mm. anything that makes you think, I want to know more, mm-hmm keep them in to the next round yeah. because uh, the, the the truth is no one knows how to pick them really no one has a perfect um, <laughs> it's the old William Goldman no one knows anything and yeah. and why make a decision that limits you if yeah. you've got if you're going to run the weekend anyway what's one more team going to hurt yeah. so we always take the teams who we still want to learn more about right and this this sort of two day focused sort of period is so interesting because what we're measuring or what we're looking for is how much do they make the most of the opportunity so do they listen to all of the mentors Um, so typically over the course of 48 hours they'll probably meet somewhere between 50 to 20 mentors wow and that's going to be overwhelming yes yes Uh, how do they deal with that do they crumble into a crying dust of heat or heap of dust at the end of the 48 hours going oh my brain hurts or do they go, okay, I can only deal with some of this. I can't deal with it all right now. So can I filter this down? Or do I 
do, am I rude to people? I mean, right. frankly, that's another really great litmus test. If, uh, I, I would, I can only agree with you on that. Yeah, and 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 if a person, as an advisor or a mentor, gives you advice and you don't agree with it, do you say I don't agree with that, or do you just say thanks for your advice? Yeah. I'll take it on board because that's the polite thing to do because someone's just giving you their time for free. Um, and I have had people I'm mentoring yeah. seriously argue with me like quite rudely and I've just gone, wow. But it is, it's it, it's that failure in a way, to, it's taking things too personally in yep. some sense and not recognizing that another person is bringing all of their value to help you. Yeah. But, and it's fine for people to have differences of opinion and frankly if you don't hear differences of opinion how are you ever going to genuinely choose exactly what is the right step next step for you and your business um and then of course what usually happens as well is there's at least one team that chooses to go and use the entire 48 hours to find a meeting room close the door and not speak to anyone <laughs> so and genuinely it happens every time right and you go, well, this is going to be hell on earth for you for the next six months if you were to get a spot because we want you to do this every single day. Right. Be out there, networking, make the most of the opportunity. And there will always be the group of people where it becomes patently obvious that they will make the most of this opportunity, that they'll help each other, they, that they will share their networks with others. I'll give you an example, actually. This is from Singapore when we were doing the recruitment last time round. One particular founder was really struggling with building his pitch because he'd never done it before. Mm. Um, he's a lovely, lovely entrepreneur from the Philippines building an amazing business. It's got a great future, but he doesn't know how to articulate yeah. this vision. Sure, which if you haven't learned, you don't how know. How would you know that, right? One of the other founders who is pitching for a spot, she used to work for Rocket Internet. So mm -hmm. she's been through this sort of process a few times. She knows the ropes. So instead of working on her pitch, she worked on his. Oh, that's brilliant. And they both got through. Right. But that for me was a really lovely example of this isn't just about you. This is about making sure that everybody gets something of value or everybody gets to win. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci. In a recent episode, Twista spent an hour talking to Peter Dunn and Toby Eggleston of Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills. They're the folks who helped the federal government draft the new laws around employee share ownership schemes. They did a great job on that show. I invite you to go to our Tumblr and give it a listen if you haven't already. Now, Peter and Toby, they are experts in this area. It's an area of great importance for every startup because employee share schemes are the way you attract and hold on to the best talent. So if you'd like to set up your own employee share scheme, visit Greenwood's website at www.greenwoods.com.au or Herbert Smith Freehills website at www.herbertsmithfreehills.com. And we're back talking to Annie Parker from Morudi. So you've now had, you're in your third intake. Are there any rock stars from Morudi that have broken out and are, you know, tearing it, crushing it, I guess, as we say these days? Okay, and, and this question I get a lot, and, and typically the measure is who's raised the most funding. Mm. And I, frankly, I'm not a fan of that because I don't think that is actually the measure of success. And I'll give you one example. There's a team from the first intake called Zed Technologies. And what they do is give you a digital film bag. So if you go in to have an MRI scan or an X-ray, right. instead of you taking the film with you, right. they give you an account and it's on a cloud service. And obviously it means then you get to take the image with you wherever you go. You can use it for other things. And presumably they've worked out all the security and all of, of that course, around that. Of yes. course. Now, they struggled after they graduated from Marudi with trying to find an investor. And they very nearly, very nearly got acquired, but they chose not to sell out and I'm so pleased they didn't because they've now finally landed on a, a, a particular business stream that's working for them and now they're funding their own growth oh brilliant which is just the best outcome ever yeah. um, and then I've got other stories oh and by the way they're from you know sort of regional Victoria mm -hmm. so again one of the other reasons why I love that story is it proves you genuinely can yeah. be from anywhere and yes. build a global business um, Another story from the first intake are uh, uh, the three boys from SafeSite. Um, so this is a, a, a OHS 
application that helps to encourage and improve safety culture on construction sites. Oh, brilliant. So it's an app. You take a photograph, you categorise the um, the safety issue, whatever that might be. And and were these guys tradies? Is that how they came to it? Or they, the, the CEO of the business was a safety manager on a construction oh, site. Okay. And one of his um, workers got injured mm-hmm. and it was because someone hadn't taken care of a particular issue on the site. He said, there's got to be a better way of doing this because otherwise it's just paper and a stupid, you know, sort of long-winded... Um, failure-ridden process. So they built this app, he and two of his buddies, who I think they went to university together or, or maybe even school, and they've been mates for years. And they're from Brisbane. They applied to Marudi, got a spot, and they just packed up their entire lives and went all in. And by all in, I mean one of them's married. He you know, sort of said, look, I'm... I'm, 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 I'm joining the o- Foreign Legion, honey. Are you okay, honey, with me leaving? And ah. she's like, you got to do what you've got to do. <laughs> and the three of them moved down to Sydney, right. rented a bedsit, right. lived in this bedsit, slept in this bedsit, <laughs> all three of them in sleeping bags for six months. <laughs> oh, my God. And that's why I love those guys, because they went all in. Yeah. And it's going great now. Um, they've actually flipped up into the US. Uh, right. They're doing brilliant work over there. One of the founders is still based here, over here in the in Australia. So they're still building and care about building their business here in Australia too. But it's just going so well. All but- right, so then now let's talk about this because Morudi is now finding that it needs to actually extend its tentacles outside of Australia, right? That's correct. So what's going on with that? So... We started looking at what, what what were the things that were holding our teams and holding our founders back. And, and the truth is it's access to large-scale capital and large-scale markets. Right. So users. We don't have bucket loads of money in this country for, right. from VC funding, and we don't have bucket loads of users. Right. So we do need to um, help connect the dots for our founders on that. And so two things have happened on that one. The first is we started to sign some global partnership deals. So instead of us having to go and set up operations in the US and China and Israel, for example, three markets, which by the way, whilst Telstra has some, you know, sort of boots on the ground there, we don't necessarily understand exactly how to do business there and exactly how to um, make sure that we can connect the dots that we do in the countries that we already do in a really meaningful way. So instead of building operations there and having to learn it all for ourselves, we thought, well, why not partner with others who are already there who have a similar philosophy to Moody and would benefit from having access to startups from this region. So the US, we signed a partnership deal with 500 startups. Yep, we all know well. those guys. Yep. Um, in China, we've signed partnership deals with Hacks Accelerator. Ah, oh, brilliant. And uh, Duncan, oh, of who course. I know well, you, you had, know. That's right, you had See? him out. That's right. Yep. This is all sort of starting to make sense, I think, now. Yes. Um, so uh, Hacks Accelerator, for your listeners, they're a, um, a hardware uh, startup accelerator based in Shenzhen, which if you don't know anything about hardware or IoT, Shenzhen is awesome. Go there. It's the, it's the center. <laughs> it yeah. really is. And then uh, China Accelerator in Shanghai, um, the Ice House, which is an angel investor group over in New Zealand, mm-hmm. which are really interesting because they've been going for well over 10 years okay. and have a most amazing angel investor network. That's... I'm going to have to have them on the show. Oh, I'll well, follow up with you later, but no I'm going to pro- have to have them on the show. Here's yeah. the stat for you, though. In 10 years, they've executed seed investments of over $110 million. Wow. It's extraordinary. So we wanted to connect with them to say, how do we copy that and bring that here to Australia and then the final one we signed recently was with um, a partnership with The Junction which is a a startup accelerator in Tel Aviv Okay. so this helps us to connect the dots and give access to large scale capital markets or investment markets for our startups Yeah, and through Tel Aviv to Europe through China to Asia of course right exactly and then through 500 startups all all over well all over America certainly and then the final part of that is we recognize that if we really truly want to help our startups once they've graduated our program, we still need to give them significant help, advice, and and that's a full-time job. Um, so it, in part, I'm disappointed because I don't want to see him leave Australia, but in other ways, I'm really excited for, for Mick and the next adventure. So Mick Lubinskis, who's been with me from day one yes. here in Sydney, building out the program, a believer from the start, and I'm so grateful for that because... 
with without someone like Mick, there's absolutely no way we would have been anywhere near as successful as we have been. The listeners will want to know that in an upcoming episode, we will be sitting down with Mick Lubinskis for a very long conversation. <laughs> All right. Before we finish up, Code Club. What is Code Club? So Code Club is a network of after-school uh, programming lessons for kids. We take primary school kids, usually around the age of 9 to 11. Okay. And for an hour a week, a mm -hmm. volunteer or a teacher that we've trained in their school mm -hmm. gives them a lesson. All of the lesson plans and materials are free to download. Mm -hmm. The teaching that we give to the teachers is free. Mm -hmm. Everything is essentially set up as a non-profit. And all we care about is giving primary school kids across Australia the opportunity to just learn the basics of computational thinking. So is thinking. this Scratch? Is this Python? Is this... We start with Scratch. Mm -hmm. So the first two terms are Scratch and Scratch Plus, and then they move on to HTML and CSS, and then the final part is Python. Woohoo! So they're learning actual skills that yeah. are in the real world. Yeah. And um, actually as well, so Code Club is part of Code Club World, which mm -hmm. started originally in the UK and has just recently um, merged with the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Which, oh, I was reading about this. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's a beautiful marriage of it starts with a bit of scratch mm. and it leads them into sort of more front-end web design and then they move into Python. And Python's usually where some of the kids find it a little difficult yeah. because if it's just writing lines of code, then it feels a little bit sort of too far removed from... And particularly, we're talking 9, 10, 11-year-old yeah. kids as well. So they need to see something happen. Yeah. So by merging with Raspberry Pi, what it means is we can now start talking robotics. Yeah. Physical and, computing. Yeah, and that's really cool for kids because they get to see yeah. a light go on and off or a yeah. sound made or, or a, a robot moving. And yeah. that's the thing that still keeps them interested. Yeah. And I I've can't tell this. you how much I've got out of this. This started originally just purely because a few of the founders in our first intake at Marudi went, we can't find enough pro uh, programmers, coders, and the developers here in Australia. Yeah, but the thing is, if you're working with nine-year-olds, you're still going to have a bit of a pause there before they're showing no, 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 up at course, Marudi. Of course, and, and look, I, I did take a little time to think, how is this going to solve their problem? And then I start, do you know what? This isn't really the problem I'm fixing anymore. I'm fixing a different one, yes. which is an entire generation of kids yeah. aren't being taught the thing that they need right. to be able to integrate into the economy that they're going to join. Right, which is, of course, exactly the point of the Raspberry Pi. There was Eben Upton's Absolutely. basic goal there. And how widespread is the program across Australia now? Uh, do you know what? Only earlier this week, we broke 600 clubs across the country. Oh, that's brilliant. We started two years ago with five. Right. And we've now got 600. That's 20,000 children. two years ago, you had five. Yeah. So 24 months, you've got 600. Yeah. Which means basically in the next 24 months, every single teacher in Australia will <laughs> be in Code Club. That's the intention. <laughs> We're not going to stop until there are 8,000 school, primary schools in Australia so we've got some work left to do, but you're right, that hockey stick of growth that we've had, uh, certainly in the last six months, has been extraordinary. And what I found is you speak to folks in your know, sort of different education departments and they really want this to happen, yes. but they just don't know how. But by going straight to schools, teachers and volunteers, it happens overnight and teachers desperately want these materials. They know they need to get more digital skills into their curriculum, mm. but they're not taught how to do it. So we help to fix that gap or fill that gap for them by giving them a day's training, showing them the materials, and they realize very quickly that actually the kids teach themselves. Yeah. And kids lap this up so quickly. They're extraordinary at, at being able to yeah. absorb this how it all works. What I found, though, is that often makes the teachers nervous because the teachers will realize that the kids will know more about this. And sometimes with some teachers, that, yeah. that's that's hard. And it has been for some teachers, I think, a little difficult until they realize that those maybe two or three kids in a class of 20 who are super good at this, they actually become the teachers for the rest. That's right. And what we found is that those teachers who were a little worried about it in the beginning now are going, oh my God, this is awesome. <laughs> I don't have to work. The kids well, are doing it all. It's also not just about that. It's also that the kids are starting to learn other skills. Yes. So collaboration, problem solving. Patience. And patience and teaching others. Yeah. What a fabulous thing that these kids are learning because it's not just that they're learning how to code. They're actually learning those other things that are really important for them in lots of other lessons as well. They're learning how to be better yeah. human beings. Exactly. Annie Parker, thank you so much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure.
Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I just wanted to say a few words about Twista Sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Now, developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever's coming next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Now, using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash twista. So 11 years ago, when I was teaching at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, I got invited to give a talk in which I knew that all of the folks who were running all of the commercial networks in Australia would be in the room, and I gave a talk. I titled the talk very daringly, Piracy is Good. I was asked by the director of the school to change the name and put a question mark afterward and say, Piracy is Good, because I wasn't supposed to frighten the horses. But what I actually did was laid out for them how file sharing was going to change the business of television in Australia. And I promised them that as people got better at finding the things they wanted online and downloading them, that they weren't going to be able to have the same business on buying product cheap in America and playing it for Australian audiences with a lot of commercials. And it turns out that 10 years later, that's come to pass. I am now speaking to two of the folks who are accelerating that process. Andrew Julian and Darcy Laycock are co-founders of Guide, a Melbourne-based company. We're gonna start off talking about those changes and then we're gonna talk about how those changes have been embodied in their startup. Welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having us, Mark. Okay, so what have we seen happening over the last 10 years? Now, keeping in mind that we've only had Netflix in Australia for about a year now, but what have we seen in terms of the global evolution about how people are using, consuming, accessing video content? Look, similar to music, um, the internet has disrupted the physical infrastructure that's been required traditionally to deliver um, film and movie content mm -hmm. and television shows. Um, whether it's an aerial um, that delivers free-to-air broadcasts, mm -hmm. whether it's cable and cable television, particularly mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, there's been a monopoly over physical distribution of content, and that extends to DVD stores, um, to some extent cinemas. DVD stores, which don't exist anymore. This is one of the other things that's gone away, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a great democratisation that's occurring in terms of our ability to access content from any, any corner of the globe, and that's now really, really accelerating for screen-based content. Okay, so now, no matter where you are in the world, you are confronted with what they might call the paradox of choice. So rather than having, and when I got to Australia, there were five networks. There were five channels, which as an American was A, numbing because everyone has cable in America, so everyone had 100 channels, and now they all have 1,000 channels over there. But B, I was like, but how can you possibly shoehorn, even 10 years ago, being able to shoehorn everything that might, you might want to watch into what was literally five broadcasting channels, because multi-channeling hadn't started yet, didn't really seem possible. So what's, what's around that explosion? How are Australians dealing with that explosion, both, I think, from the commercial level and also from the consumption level? Uh, look, obviously, the advent of um, Netflix has been um, substantial now that we have robust, generally speaking, broadband networks, mm. um, people's ability to watch content on demand. Um, there's a lot of content on Netflix Australia, mm -hmm. um, as we generally know, not nearly as much as the US, mm. or particularly if you look at the Netflix catalogue globally. Um, now, why is that? Uh, content licensing. So the, the, the global content licensing of movies and TV shows is extremely fragmented. Right. Um, and it's fundamentally to do with the fact that movie and television episodes are perishable items. The industry has this concept of windowing, where the very first viewing of something is generally the most valuable. It's why cinemas protect their 90-day window on new release films, mm -hmm. and it then cascades down through the channels. Okay. Um, and it's all about maximizing the revenue from that particular piece of content. And I mean, the same thing would be true when you're premiering a television series, so Game of Thrones, for whatever, HBO would try to protect that as much as possible. But you now also are confronted with, okay, there may be that, but I, as a viewer, 
am no longer restricted to sort of this limited palette of either films or television series, right? We're in what we now call the golden age of television, where there's more television being produced than there ever has been, and there's more good stuff being produced. So how do you as a commercial provider then try to sort of get yourself seen in that world? Spot on. And, and the very high quality free-to-air networks we've had in Australia traditionally had quite a lot of purchase over people's attention. Right. So as you, as you said, in um, the US, um, cable penetration peaked at about 93%. Right, and it's fallen now, hasn't it's it? It's fallen. It's fallen. It's sort of the low 80s now. Um, wow. And, and there's this constant talk about the cord-cutting phenomenon. Right. Um, in Australia, Foxtel's penetration, I believe, peaked at about 30% of households. And has it been falling, or is it just sort of steady at couldn't, that? I couldn't speak to that. Um, yeah. that, that's because Foxtel yep. probably isn't speaking to that. Yeah, but I think I think if you ask, particularly in Australia, most Australians, we've been very well serviced by our high-quality free-to-air networks. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, what's changing is people are assuming more control over their viewing experience. Mm -hmm. It's the concept of on-demand. Mm -hmm. And we're moving from a linear-based, time-based model of consumption um, to choosing what and, what and where we watch things. So is it that we're almost starting to see, and I think this actually sort of ties into where Guide is, it's the appification of all of this, that rather than saying that there's this stream that I'm going to step into and if I'm not there when the stream is going off, I've missed it, that in fact I open something like an app on whatever device, hit a button, and I'm now immersed in that experience. So it's that transition. Spot on. Look, God's, God's, God's tagline is take back control of what you watch. And I think that's the ultimate trend is that consumers are now reasserting control over what they watch. Well, that assumes that there was a time in the past when they actually had control. And I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that that was ever actually true. I mean, it's, it is interesting because I think we do feel like we're taking something back, but I also feel like maybe we never actually had it in the first place. All right, so we're now in a world, particularly in Australia, where you now have every TV station, I think, has its own app. I can't remember whether Nine has an app. Yeah. It does, all right. So I've got, and I've got my Apple TV, and, and all of them, with the exception of the Nine app, are installed on the Apple TV, the SBS app. I have all of my apps. I have my Netflix app. Um, and I now have this enormous library of content. And when I sit down in front of my Apple TV and go, what am I going to watch tonight? I'm like, uh, I have to go through every one of these apps to find out what I want to watch. And I think as someone who is just looking for the lean back experiences, they say, wouldn't, I mean, that's, that's going to turn me off. I'm, I'm either always going to go to the SBS app or to the ABC app because I'm familiar with those or another app, but I'm not going to broaden my horizon. I, I think we have like this paradox of choice. Every person who I've ever talked to who's used Netflix has um, like empathized with the feeling of sitting down and spending more time choosing something to watch. Um, and having an um, argument about... And having, yeah, the argument about what is the best thing for you right now and all that sort of stuff. Whereas with, like, with linear TV channels, your consideration set was only like the number of channels, right. only one thing can play at a time. And with what's on tonight, right? right? Yeah. And that's and it's a question that, in some ways, in a generation, kids are going to go, huh? Right? What do you mean, what's on tonight? More, Everything's more, on. More, more aptly as well, the decision set is: Do I want to skip off this channel and go to the next one? Yeah. And um, and you don't have that. You don't have that choice in video on demand. There's always a decision involved, and, um, and that's a problem that will be solved. I, I think the problem also not just being that we've moved from having a choice of say five different pieces of content at any time to thousands. Right the kind of hidden unknowns, not knowing what is on each platform or what you can watch has become like even more complex. Whereas before you could go and look at like the printed TV guide and go, oh, tonight it's this movie and this TV show. Mm. Now with Netflix Australia, for instance, you have access to thousands of titles and right. TV shows, things you could be watching or you've never heard of. Um, and then when you add every other service here, be it catch up or subscription or even rentals, including like iTunes and things like that, mm. your actual number of choices isn't just like five or even a hundred, it's thousands upon thousands. And we're actually seeing now that the catalogs, the older catalogs are starting to come online. So it's not just the stuff that's being produced, but it's now everything that had been produced for years and years and years, going all the way back to basically when they started putting things on videotape or even just sort of not throwing the tapes out, that we're actually getting a, a world that's growing not just forward, but it's growing backward. Yeah, the, the licensing of older content, especially where content owners um, have realized that they have this existing back catalog of stuff. Mm. Um, 
that to them isn't necessarily incredibly valuable because people have watched it before, but platforms like Netflix um, can make a very conscientious decision knowing, okay, well, we only need a certain number of customers to pay for this. Mm. Um, there's huge value to actually license older content over newer content because A, it's cheaper, right. um, but they can make very educated like decisions around will people watch it? And that means we're getting, as you say, like a lot more older content, even more than newer content. Mm. And, and, and interestingly enough, the past is informing the future. So take a show like Gilmore Girls, right. for example, on Netflix. Um, I suspect their data is suggested that people are watching that series um, as heavy binge watchers, mm. potentially discovering it for the first time, potentially com- coming back and rediscovering it. And the data that they have around the consumption of that content has informed their decision to produce four more 90-minute episodes right. of a TV show that ended a decade ago. And presumably the X-Files very much the yep. same and thing. The, the kind of go-to... Um, example of this new age of TV is Arrested Development, a cult classic right. TV show yes. that um, ran for three seasons, got canned, um, yeah. and Netflix, for instance, who Netflix, as kind of seems to be a trend here, um, lead the way. They've been around generally the longest, or, mm. um, and they're also thriving the most. So what's fascinating about that is they use data from piracy, which especially relevant here in Australia, where um, access to faster internet connections has meant that we've become known as a nation of pirates mm. more so than most other countries. Um, using that data around demand for a series that they may not even air, they don't have to have specific playback data, um, to decide that it is actually economically viable to bring back a cancelled TV show. So Netflix is, in a way, it's it's using the big data from piracy in order to be able to guide its own programming decisions. That's very clever. Yeah. And, and for them, it really de-risks it. And it's one of those interesting things. When we say we're in a golden age of TV with some of the best content produced in years, like shows like Breaking Bad being mm. um, one of the markers of the kind of start of the trend and Mad Men is another, um, very high production quality, expensive to produce with incredible writing, um, being able to de-risk that process um, has become more and more critical. So for the content producers actually going, I know I can make a profit on this show, even if it is something that would be inherently risky, um, is something that's meant shows that we traditionally wouldn't see or wouldn't see to the level that we're seeing them produced. Um, things like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black on Netflix. Um, and even locally, there's smaller content like um, No Activity on Stan. Mm. Um, being able to produce that content where before it would take someone going, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily worth it or not. Being now able to say, okay, we know that people will watch this based on piracy trends or our own viewing data um, is actually meaning we're getting more and more interesting content, different to stuff we've seen before. Um, and different being more risky traditionally. The other, the other, the other trend. That... Um, You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. Now, as you know, all of our guests offer lots of useful information. The folks from Guide will have links to what they're doing Annie will be giving us some links to Code Club. We put those up on our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You can come by there. You'll also find earlier episodes, lots of other very useful information that our guests have been providing to share with you. So please do go by twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And we're back with Andrew and Darcy from Guide. Okay, so Andrew, we have this swirling sea of too much content, too many choices. How then did you start to frame that into a product like Guide? What, what, what problem were you originally setting out to solve? Our original problem that we set out to solve was a better way to um, identify your mood mm-hmm. and what you're in the mood for. Mm-hmm. We've done some very interesting R&D around that space. Mm-hmm. but the specific content recommendations, this is the exact content that you want to watch at this moment, mm. it's a very intractable problem. Um, it's something yeah. something we continue to work on, but what we realized in our journey trying to solve that problem was that actually it's not all about recommendation algorithms and the perfect, perfect machine-based suggestion for you. Actually, a big part of the problem was the social friction and the interface mm-hmm. around that. Um, so we founded Guide a little over two years ago now. We've been working as a very small team, mm-hmm. incrementing on the problem. Um, and as the platforms have opened up, where we built initially an iPhone app, right. we've now, we're now in the process of building an Apple TV app mm-hmm. um, that elegantly work together to present all the content across all these apps and services in one spot. Um, 
and solve some of the social friction around how you go about deciding what to watch. So Apple TV, at least the, the, the version 4, I guess, of the Apple TV, the one that was released last year, is now sort of presenting an appified framework for viewing of all sorts of uh, video content, yep. right? And, and it's funny because Apple was almost playing, playing catch-up because there were a couple of the Roku boxes and the other boxes were sort of all ahead of Apple on this. But Apple has landed as the 900-pound gorilla that they are. And they've gotten the content providers on board to create their own apps. Now that you have all of those apps in one place, you actually have the crit critical mass of content needed to make something like Guide work. Uh, in a sense, yes, absolutely. But really, what, what's interesting about the Apple TV platform is the interconnectedness of it. Right. Um, and the fact that we can now build an app for the Apple TV mm -hmm. that solves the very user experience issue that we see with having to jump in and jump out of various apps. Right. Apple themselves have stated that the future of television is apps. Mm -hmm. And that presents a new and interesting problem. While it's a step in the right direction, as you've said, all of this content is now fragmented between apps. And yeah. the old experience of pressing up and down on the TV channels and casually browsing for content that will entertain you, we've added in friction points where you need to go into apps and then out of apps. Right. And there's no elegant way um, to navigate all of them, particularly around your particular preferences. Well, you're saying there isn't, but in fact what you've tried to do now is to come up with an elegant way. Yep. And, and the terminology used in the industry is a universal watch list. It's, it's what everyone is screaming out for is that's great all this content's now available but I want it all in one spot and that's what Guide is working on. Okay so you have a product is is it has it been released in the Australian market yet? For for the iPhone but not for the Apple TV. Okay so you sort of have but they're they're really meant to work in tandem so you have the iPhone app and people can grab the iPhone app right now. And they can and if anyone would like to beta test the Apple TV app jump on our website guide.tv gyde.tv. All right so take that up if and, and I have been beta testing it and it's pretty cool thank you um, okay so you now have an Australian market lots of iPhones out here fair number of Apple TVs I don't know if there's figures on how they've been selling but you know they're, they're not uncommon and you now have the capacity to build a relationship between the smartphone and the screen which isn't just casting which is the relationship that we've had so far but in fact is a more sort of I guess what content oriented relationship what does that mean how does that grow and what does that mean if I'm a content provider what does that mean if I'm a content producer or a consumer um, so for content providers the big thing is richer more powerful experiences um, so a it opens up the playing field for different people mm -hmm. where traditionally companies like Netflix um, when you wanted to put an app on the TV, mm. there's actually been pretty significant technical hurdles. There's a significant number of platforms. Um, as a developer, quite a few of them are very, very painful to work with. Mm. Um, so the Apple TV and even devices like the Roku um, have significantly reduced the amount of effort it takes um, to release an app okay. that is nice for consumers. And their ultimate goal, A, being to distribute their content, but also B, to give something that people will use. Right. Um, and so with the advent of these devices, it's actually significantly lowered the barrier to be able to do that and do that across enough consumers that it economically makes sense. There's, um, a, there's a certain level of democratisation to this. So we're talking to platforms all the time. Mm. Um, and what's most interesting is a trend towards niche content platforms, whether they deal in documentaries, whether they deal in action sports. Hey You is recently launched in Australia. It's backed by NBC Universal, so it's not a part player but it's specifically geared towards reality television right. as the barriers to entry for building apps for platforms right. come down more and more content that's out there can get put on these services you know another example is Ozflix that's launching in Australia so but then as someone who has taught producers and will probably be teaching producers in the future do I tell them if you have a production company you need an app is that the best way to get your product out to market now in the mid 21st century I think there's enough platforms now where for the actual content producers themselves, with the exception of a few cases, it makes a lot more sense, unless you have a significant catalogue of group stuff, um, to go with one of the existing platforms. So, the but What if I won't get the same deal though, right? Or will I get the same deal if I have to go and license my content to a Netflix or to a Stan or to so a Presto? The fascinating part of that, and taking it back to where we talked about cable and that before, right. is it's not just the technology availability, but the actual distribution. So for instance, broadcasting on TV here. Right. You have to have a license to do that. And, and you have to pay a lot are, for it. Yeah, like uh, looking at Ten's recent financial announcements, licenses are really ridiculously expensive. 
Um, so for content providers being able to do your app, like you're paying for bandwidth, which is pretty cheap, and mm. the infrastructure, which has gotten to the point now where actually running your own beyond-demand platform is like you can do it from a bedroom. Yeah. Hello, Amazon. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a lot of tools, especially with these new platforms that appeal to developers, where if you have the content, you can literally have something very, very rough that you probably wouldn't sell to consumers, but to prove the concept in an no. afternoon. Right. Compared to years and years ago, where you'd have to go out and build stuff, you'd have to buy stuff. Okay, so the barrier to entries are down, but what you're saying is you still want to go with an aggregator because it's going to be, it's going to give you presence. I think a great example is um, Jungle Boys, who uh, started building their profile through YouTube, right, um, and then have recently produced No Activity with Stan, a hilarious right. series. Everyone should watch it. Um, that workflow effectively or that ability to build your profile okay. and then at a certain so point. So stepping stones. Stepping stones. All right. Okay, so where does guide fit into this? And there's an enormous economic uh, sort of ecosystem of components around film, television, distribution. Where does guide fit into this ecosystem as a company? So I mean, we know where it fits in terms of the user experience, but where does it fit in terms of an economic entity? So obviously at Critical Mass, it's a customer acquisition channel mm -hmm. and a retention channel for the platforms. Mm -hmm. um, we also work with industry players on the back end to use some of our technology um, to power their services. Um, and fundamentally, because we take, it's very deeply ingrained, we take a consumer first perspective. Mm -hmm. um, the industry by and large is led by their own um, remit, which is totally reasonable. Um, we feel that Guide's position um, in the ecosystem is as an advocate for consumers and an advocate for the user experience. So if I'm a user of Guide and I have a watch list of all of these films that are not on any of the services here, does that data get back to those services so that they're knowing what they should be buying or what they should be producing? That's the plan. All right, so in the same way that Netflix is watching the piracy figures to understand what they should be putting in production, you can actually take watch lists, wish lists, and feed those back so that these folks can actually deliver things that people will want to sit and watch. That's, that's the ultimate model that we're pursuing, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, no, that's good. That's a, it's a feedback that hasn't, I mean, it existed in the sense of ratings. People would decide when they were watching something whether they wanted to watch it, but there was no sense of perspective like, right, and that's why you have this idea of the network executive who is seeing into the future and making decisions about what audiences would want because there was no other way to do this. So are, so is Guide then, are you a content enabler or are you a big data company? Potentially both, potentially both. We're a consumer first proposition. Right. But the thing that comes out of that is the consumers having a say in the things that they want to watch, mm. things that they've got preferences for in the mix of services they have informing the industry, and that's ultimately the business model of God. So how many users do you need before you start getting data that's clean enough that you think that that's going to be worth sharing around? Re representative samples, um, and this is a background of mine, but re representative samples don't mm. have to be as substantial as one might think. No, it's about 3,000 in Australia, right? Correct. Before, yeah. correct. It's properly weighted to the internet population. That's mm. quite a representative sample we mm -hmm. would clearly like far more than 3,000 users, mm -hmm. um, but from a data perspective, if we do our job right and build a product that solves a user experience issue and right. people fall in love with, right. those numbers will follow and they don't need to be massively substantial to be very valuable and useful and insightful to the industry. So, yeah, okay, so so it's, it's a consumer platform, it's a big data platform, and it's kind of the 21st century Nielsen then, too. So, it's interesting because all of these providers are very, very driven by these figures internally. Mm. So we talk about Netflix using piracy data, but also having things like being able to tell you at what point in a series a person becomes addicted and will binge it. Yes, which so, Netflix knows now, yeah, right? Netflix, they know exactly Netflix that moment. Netflix can tell you for uh, the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt exactly what point in an, like the right. series the average user will get hooked. Yeah. But by like the appification of this, I guess, the downside has been at a high level, you have no insight across apps. So you have some level of measurement, in, especially in places like here in Australia with things like um, Oztam and other providers mm -hmm. who will do some opt-in mm -hmm. stuff. So for instance, on catch-up TV and that sort of thing, you have the Nielsen equivalent. Right. Um, but companies like Netflix don't share this data and they won't share this. It's not in their best interest normally to share it. They right. want to keep that data. It's a competitive advantage, absolutely. Um, and actually building ways to collect that data is hard. People are obviously very privacy conscious. 
Um, and like it's this hard middle ground where the data is very, very val valuable. For consumers, we don't necessarily directly realize it, but that influences so much that happens behind the scenes. It influences investment decisions in what shows to produce, mm. um, content acquisition for things that's already out there. Mm. Um, it, it has a lot of sway over what actually happens with given services. Um, and the lack of this data, or for instance, like uh, using Presto as an example, just not knowing what is performing well on another service. Like you, you'll know internally this specific title goes well, but you don't necessarily know, like if you have content that Netflix has something very similar that's doing well, unless you have access to similar data or understanding around that, you're missing out. Um, so this is, so, so in that sense, guide is, <laughs> it's a very interesting name for a business because it's not just a guide for the consumers. It's a guide for the producers. Correct. Andrew, Darcy, thank you both very much for this very interesting picture of the future of uh, visual media. Exciting times. Thanks for having us, Mark. Yeah, thank you for having us. One of the most interesting things about Annie Parker is that she really doesn't think she's working all of that hard. As she kept on saying, she's just connecting the dots for people. But I actually think that particularly as you mature in this industry, as your Rolodex gets bigger, as your list of contacts builds out, that that's part of the job, that your job is to connect because connecting is the thing that makes all of the rest of this work. I mean, you know, we are part of a network culture now. Every one of us is carrying a network device around. Most of these startups have something to do with the network. Maybe we should be taking the hint and putting those network skills to work to help improve the community. Big thanks to Twister sponsors Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills and Braintree because their support is making the podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Wormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's always a joy to listen to, particularly on Felix's brand new phone. Thanks to Annie Parker, Andrew Julian, and Darcy Laycock for making time to come on our show. We'll be back in a fortnight with another of our regular news specials, but this one is going to focus on the upcoming federal election. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.